This morning, the clocks went back a week ago, spring has sprung, and we're into April. So how's drilling going? Finally getting on top of it? Sean Sparling is here soon with useful agronomy advice, as ever. Also this week, the new device said to be a real game-changer for agriculture. Our system uh, can retrofit or fit onto new systems and should fit onto any hydraulic sprayers. Plus, we can't escape it. Article 50 has been triggered, but what happens if, as many are predicting, subsidies disappear? I think it might be difficult, um, but I think there will be some businesses, and if we can diversify, there will be opportunities. Um, But we do need to understand the risks to our businesses. Sunday, April 2nd, 2017. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. Let's start this week with our agronomist, Sean Sparling. March was uh, rather unsettled weather-wise, it's fair to say. Mind you, when hasn't it been? Uh, Finally, though, drilling is now underway. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Sean. I feel like I've been promoted coming on first. It's either that or let's get him out of the way. Um, I'd like to think of the former rather than the latter. Um, Yes, so... uh, I have been hosting Farmers of the UK on Twitter, at Farmers of the UK. They hand it over every week. Somebody different takes over the Twitter feed. So I've been trying to showcase um, what happens in UK agriculture and the nature that we work alongside. So I've just carried my camera with me all week like I always do. And I've tried to post pictures of the things we see on farms, on conventional farms, because there's an awful lot of people try and belittle us in, in agriculture, saying we're doing so much damage to the environment. Well, without UK agriculture, the environment will most definitely suffer because there won't be any habitat management to make sure that the ecosystem is in um, in balance. So I'm very proud to have been part of that. I finish Sunday night at 8 o'clock. So go to at Farmers of the UK. You'll see what I've been posting all week. So let's start then with oilseed rape. You can't fail to have noticed how yellow the county has suddenly become over the last few days, few warm days. And that means that the pollen beetle threat has largely gone away. Once you start getting flowers in oilseed rape, it means they're going away from burrowing into the buds and doing the damage and heading for the, the open flowers and they will then pollinate. So I haven't sprayed any of my 5,000 acres of oilseed rape this year for pollen beetle and the net result of that will be that the ecosystem and the, the little things within the canopy like the parasitic wasps and the spiders and all the good things in there, the beetles, will have been left alone and they will do their job and help us out for the rest of the season because that's what integrated pest management is all about. So oilseed rape disease levels remain relatively low, like leaf spot is increasing. If you did put something like tebuconazole in a few weeks ago when you put the um, treatment on for mayweed, thistles, poppies, etc., then you will get about three weeks out of that, so you're up to date. You will have got a little bit of growth regulation out of that, although you do need a three-quarter dose of something like tebuconazole or metconazole to get a good uh, growth regulatory effect. So on the very, very forward canopies, there are other products, of course. Um, You can put things on which have uh, a much stronger blend of growth regulators in them, like mepiquot chloride, for example, or paclobutrazole. They are very expensive, so judge as to whether you need to use that level of growth regulation. But do bear in mind, if you get a flat crop, it'll cost you a lot more than the cost of that extra growth regulator. Um, And now would be the time to do it. Uh, If you're going to do it, now is the time to do it. Don't forget the manganese magnesium. There are most definitely some deficiencies showing out there. Also a bit of boron showing here and there with a split stem with like a laddering within it. Um, And final nitrogen. We said last week, while you can still go through, you should be going through and get it done now sooner rather than later. 
Um, sclerotinic control way too early in oilseed rape yet. You only get that after the petals have dropped and the botrytis has got in. So that's that's for the mid-flowering. Um, T0s on winter wheat, they're carrying on at a pace. Um, the wheat has really shifted. Growth stage 30, very wide out there now. A lot of septoria in these crops, a lot of stem-based browning, whether that be fusarium, eyespot, sharp eyespot. You can find all of these things in the stem-based. So bear in mind that uh, boscolid, very good at stem-based diseases, also Thioconazole very good at stem-based diseases. And if you're going to deal with eye spot, you need to have dealt with it by the time you get to grow stage 32, or you won't be able to deal with it after that. So probably worth thinking about it in the equation when it comes to what you're going to put on. Um, also, when it comes to cereals, if you do have blackgrass still to deal with, then for goodness sake, prioritise that and get it on, um, because the bigger the blackgrass gets, the more difficult it is to control. If you've got broadleaf weeds, there are products like Eagle, etc., which work in cooler conditions the new one from Dow is another one very good broadleaf weed control but actually we're pretty clean out there the autumn herbicides have worked very very well um, so no desperate hurry I don't think to go out there and put herbicides on spring beans going in the ground now um, do and peas are the same with this sort of advice don't put them into wet soils bide your time don't force them in we're still quite early yet same with spring wheat there's plenty of time to put spring wheat in the ground and get another week's drying on these fields. Maybe another flush of blackgrass out of the way. Same with spring barley. Um, but put them into good seedbed conditions. That's why you're putting them in. Give them a good chance. There's no point forcing things in the ground and it to cost you money and uh, be full of blackgrass when you could have waited another week and it sorts the job out for you. Um, sugar beet, they're going in the ground now, thank goodness. I've seen my first chitted sugar beet plant. Just broken its seed coat. Been in the ground for seven days um, pre-emergence weed control as I said last week prioritize the fields which have got black grass make sure that you put something in for that black grass something like ethofumazate in the pre-em will do an awful lot of good for you and remember that metamitron very good on pansies and not grass if you're using tacron chloridazon for example pyramid that's very good on the bindweeds etc if you're going with ethofumazate helps on the grass weeds and the cleavers so choose your weapon and and pick the right mixture to do the job not many people these days don't put a pre-emergence on and it does buy you time if the weather's against you over the emergence period and remember you can only put on 120 kilos of nitrogen on a sugar beet crop there are no flexibility for that so you're probably better to put 50 50 splits some in the seed bed and some when it's what they call peri-emergence which is when the cotyledons are fully expanded and the buds of the first true leaves are there same goes for spring barley really with your nitrogen put half on in the seed bed same with spring wheat put half on in the seed bed or some in the seed bed to give it the opportunity to get going because as we go through over the next few weeks you're going to see things warm up they're going to look for food if they haven't got that nitrogen there they're going to struggle and you'll see the effect of that for the rest of the season so been a busy week i think it's going to get even busier you need to buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride sean sparling of sparling agronomy services we've touched a fair bit of late on the potential loss of actives and the threat that can bring to agriculture. I think it's fair to say it's up there with Brexit as one of the main concerns right now. Well, one company has devised what it claims to be a game changer for the industry, reducing spray drift by 80%. Clive Wynette is from Magro. Uh, well, the Magro concept is um, basically trying to keep the products we've got in the field. Um, and what we do is we put a magnetic charge onto the spray droplets um, our system uh, can retrofit or fit onto new systems and should fit onto any hydraulic sprayers. Um, and the idea being is it uses the uh, magnetic charge 
to attract to the, the charge that the plant has got, the target it has got, and that brings us considerable reductions in drift. Um, obviously, say, vital that we maintain buffer zones, and, and it should enable in the UK um, uh, for better efficacy because you can go out with nozzles with uh, better coverage and um, go out with less drift. Um, increased spray days, obviously very, very welcome, and um, we are seeing in a lot of trial work we're doing that there are efficacy benefits. Um, a lot of trials going through at the moment um, and work being done, and there'll be a lot in the press in the next few months. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, you, you, it, it fits all sprayers, you believe, so far anyway. Haven't found one it wasn't at the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah, haven't found one it wasn't at the moment. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, and, you know, we're an engineer-focused company as well, so we will work with manufacturers to make sure we understand the primary role of a sprayer is to actually spray. Uh, and so our system has to enable that as well. And obviously there's different uh, line configurations and people use dribble bars uh, for liquid furt and things like this. And the system's compatible with all of that. Uh, so we've taken that into consideration. And you mentioned extra drift days. Obviously every extra day that, that can be out there is vital, isn't it? Very much so. Very much so. Um, the thing is with, fungus, you know, with fungicide programs, once you get behind, you very, very struggle to catch up. So you need to be out there with your program in a timely fashion. Um, so yeah, very very important, very very important. And, and elsewhere in the world, I guess this could be used what for saving water and that kind of stuff. Not necessarily in the UK, but in other parts of the world. Yeah, very much so. Um, we're, we're very active in California, and we're doing a lot of work in Ethiopia and Kenya. And there are some significant water savings coming through there. Some significant water savings. Uh, as I say um, less, probably less of an issue in the UK, but yeah, very very important in other parts of the world. And here in the UK, as you say, it is drift reduction, also better coverage. Um, so you, look, you yourself got involved, what, just after Christmas, you were saying, yeah? Yes, very much. Yeah, I'm from a farming background. Um, recently, I've been working, I worked for Frontier for five years, and then I've worked in the pesticide industry uh, for three years as an account manager. So I understand the problems that we've got with, with the actives that we've got. And um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to keep the actives we've got um, and say so better coverage will help with that. Um, and you know there's all sorts of implications Um, certainly pesticides manufacturers machinery manufacturers farmers and growers are all looking at this system it's very interesting very interesting Clive Wynette there from Magro a game changer then let us know your thoughts you can email us as usual through the website Right, on to the latest from uh, Open Field then, and it's uh, Chris Spratt with the news this week. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Sean. What's uh, what's happening? Quiet week? Uh, yeah, relatively quiet week as far as the phones have been concerned, I must say. Uh, lots of land work taking place, and people relieved to get uh, on top side of that, I think, really. And uh, probably by this weekend, uh, down to maybe just some of the heavier uh, uh, fields to uh, to get uh, drilled, but yeah, um, good good progress really. As far as the market's concerned, well, the domestic wheat market uh, at present seemingly range bound, but for how long I think remains the question. May seventeen wheat futures, that's the futures uh, traded in London. Uh, the open position there is high for this time of year, around about four hundred thousand tons. So plenty to sort between now and the first what they call the tender day on the twenty fifth of April. As far as the market itself is concerned, well, it's difficult to gauge the depth of buying interest as growers, as we said, are busy on land work and, and most are waiting to see uh, what's left after existing contracts have been completed before making further commitments. And buyers, uh, on, on the flip side, are really taking small amounts of top-up and to mouth uh, and cover as and when required. It still could be tight by the end of the season. Uh, a long way to go, really. 
main story of the week, I suppose, as far as the UK uh, is being concerned, is the triggering of Article 50, and we've all uh, listened to that uh, quite a lot throughout the week. Um, but obviously, from an agriculture point of view, it is very important, uh, and we will need to follow Sterling, Sterling's reaction, and uh, you know that will influence our price going forward. And but it is, isn't just um, currency that affects prices in the UK. Uh, if you uh, uh, want to buy or a buyer of wheat into Egypt at the moment, you'll need twice as many of Egyptian pounds as you did before November. Russian ruble, that's currently at a 20-month high against the US dollar. So their growers there will feel under pressure and, and be trying to hold off selling if they can. Uh, on the all-seed rape side of things, well, that's continuing to drift really on inactivity. Crushers are munching their way through imported cargoes at various destinations. There's still some way to go before the end of the season. Uh, imports have certainly helped to redress some of the, the balance that was there uh, and given them the opportunity to keep out of the market. Currency's been a little firmer, but as we know, things can turn around very quickly. Uh, over the weekend, there'll be the USDA Stocks and Plantings Intentions report come out. That'll be after the close of play for the UK and European markets uh, Friday evening. Uh, so any impact will that, of that will be seen in tomorrow's trades. Uh, and on the back of that, really, the market's been quiet towards the end of the week. There's always an unknown element uh, to, to these uh, reports. And um, that's what really uh, keeps people probably taking a, a more sedentary view towards a, a position on the market. As far as prices are concerned, wheat for May 148 to 150, with harvest 130 to 131, and November 133 to 135. Group 1 premiums on the old crop are still in the range of £3 to £4. Feed barley, X Farm 120 to 123 for May, with harvest at 108 to 110, and November at 113 to 115. All seed rape drifted on the week, as we've said, 328 to 330 for May, with the harvest at 290 to 293, and November at 300 to 302. And finally, beans, £160 for feed beans on the old crop still, with new crop 147 to 150 for November. Thank you. Chris Pratt, Open Field. We've talked a lot about Brexit here on the programme over recent weeks, actually over the last 18 months or so, but it is such an important issue, the biggest facing agriculture right now, it's fair to say. On Wednesday, of course, the letter triggering Article 50 was finally handed over, and in two years' time, we'll be out of the EU. What does that mean for subsidies, though? Guaranteed until 2020, but after that, it's anyone's guess still. Ian Bailey is Head of Agricultural Research at Savills. So what does he think the future holds for the industry? I think there's opportunities. Um, there will be winners and losers, but we, uh, uh, it's difficult to know exactly what is going to happen. Um, but there will be changes and there will be some restructuring. Um, but I think there are opportunities and, and we need to make the most of those. Part of your presentation today was looking at subsidies. You think we might be able to survive without subsidies? I think it might be difficult, um, but I think there will be some businesses, and if we can diversify, there will be opportunities. Um, but we do need to understand the risks to our businesses. And you're obviously looking at research. You've been looking at what have happened in other countries. Interesting, some of the facts you had about New Zealand and some of the other countries where subsidies did end, you know, they did actually thrive, didn't they? They did thrive, and they've, they've got a very um, efficient business now and, and a very successful business. Um, so there's no reason why we can't do the same. But we are different. I accept that we are different. Our landscape is different. Um, our population density is different and we are a different country. Um, so there will, will need to be some support for environmental and some of the public goods. Um, but that will be an income stream that we, we can tap into. What do you find is the, the feeling at the moment in agriculture? 
Um, I think it's quite diverse, really. I think I think there is there are people positive. There's a lot of people talking about it. Um, we're holding quite a lot of dinners and debates, um, talking to our clients uh, and to our contacts. I think people are very prepared to to look at it and to, to think what alternative things we could do. And you're also talking, of course, with George Eustace, among among others yes. as well. What are the feeling you're getting back from? From him, because you know, agriculture is very low down, isn't it, in, in the grander scheme of things when we come to talking about Article 50 and talking about whatever deal we'll get from Europe? Um, yes, no, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think the key message that we're getting is that forget direct support. Direct support, especially from Jewel Juices, doesn't appear to come in his vocabulary very often, um, but he does talk about some of the other issues, uh, pub, uh, public goods um, and inf- um, grants for investment and those type of things which will support the industry. An interesting question earlier was, is Brexit the least of our problems? I mean, we've got, obviously, the election, particularly in France, uh, and Donald Trump this week. I agree. Um, we don't know what's around the corner. Um, and I think there's a lot going on in Europe. There's obviously a lot going on, on across the pond. Um, we should just have to wait and see. But we have to, we're in this environment. We have to understand our businesses, and we have to look for the opportunities and mitigate the risk. Do you think there is a fear of further uncertainty with President Trump? Uh, definitely, um, definitely. I think there is, um, but we'll have to see how that pans out and uh, use the information we've got, look at the scenarios, do a sensitivity analysis on our businesses and uh, try and be prepared. You touched on land values as well. Have we peaked price-wise, do you think? Um, no, I think they will keep going up. I think we've peaked from where we were before. I think we're going to have a period now of fairly flat values um, on average. I don't think we'll see a crash in land values like we've seen with the residential um, and some of the commercial property. Um, but I think yeah, thereafter they will go up, but probably not at the rates we did before. And as you also touched on, it's, it's diverse, isn't it? You know, one farm could go for astronomical price. Another farm might not even sell over, just over the road. That's right. And that is the market at the moment. It is very diverse. And uh, it all, it's all to do with the bidders, the number of bidders, the number of people bidding on in, in an individual farm. And if you've got a neighbour that's really interested and has been trying to buy it for several generations, then that farm could make a lot more money than one further down the road. And is there any, any sign that could change? Not at the moment. I think at the moment... Um, I think if commodity prices went up and the cement sentiment came back in, but I think at the moment people are seeing it as um, a market where if they, if they want it, they'll, they'll go for it. Um, but it, I think at the moment we're going to see pressure with commodity prices where they are. And that's going to be a bigger effect than the Brexit effect. Ian Bailey of Savills. At British Sugar, they're looking confidently to the future post-Brexit. Paul Kenwood is MD of British Sugar. Well, so far there's been very limited impact um, and we are very positive about the future of the business regardless of Brexit. So we are one of the most cost-effective producers of sugar in the world. Uh, We have got a great um, proposition for our customers across uh, the UK. Uh, And so we think that we will prosper uh, come Brexit or not. Uh, And Brexit actually gives us an opportunity to design a UK sugar policy with UK government um, that should help us continue to be successful. What, What is it about leaving the EU that provides that opportunity specifically? So we um, have a chance to design a sugar policy which balances the needs of our homegrown sugar business, which has got 9,500 jobs across East Anglia and the East Midlands, which works with 3,500 growers, um, which generates electricity, builds animal feed and generates sugar um, uh, with um, the interests of consumers, manufacturers, um, and also uh, imports of sugar from developing countries which need the income uh, from sugar uh, to survive and to thrive. Now, if you were advising the government on policy, what, what would you particularly like to see in this new policy going forward? 
we, we want the government to recognize that sugar is a special homegrown industry uh, and to put uh, the time and attention to designing a sugar policy. Um, one of the things we're worried about is that government might uh, accidentally damage something which is quite special. Um, that said, we currently trade very happily with the EU and can continue to, so free access to that market is important to us. Um, we are a very highly skilled business, so we are not particularly worried about labor, but it would be good to be able to continue to uh, transfer highly talented people around our group. So we do have businesses in um, Spain and Africa in particular. So there, there are some small immigration asks, but broadly, um, just to uh, allow us to carry on competing successfully in the world. Now, let me ask you about the quota issue. Now, that there have been uh, EU quotas uh, for sugar production, uh, but my understanding is that they're coming down anyway. Does that mean that there'll be no impact going forward if these quotas are already coming down? It's a, it's a great example of how the, the sugar policy for the UK has been decided outside the UK and has had to take account of uh, the other 27 countries. Um, that, that regime limited us quite strongly in what we were able to sell. And despite being one of the most efficient producers in the world, we were unable to put export into the world market. Uh, and we were heavily limited into how much sugar we could produce in our own country and in the EU. Stepping away from that uh, opens up the opportunity for us to export to the world, to export to Europe. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, and in future, sugar policy will be decided in Westminster. Uh, which we think means it will be better tailored to the UK industry. In terms of exporting to the EU post-Brexit, I mean, presumably at the moment you don't know what the rules are going to be. So you mentioned a few moments ago that you felt you can still export to the European Union, but presumably until negotiations are completed, you don't know for certain. No, it's it's absolutely true. So that there is some uncertainty there, and we sell mm. about 10% of our volume goes to... Um, Ireland um, and northern France. So we export successfully to the European Union at the moment. Um, we are uh, talking to government to make sure that the customs barriers are as frictionless as possible and that we can continue to make those exports. Let's uh, move on to talk about world trade and for countries outside the European Union. You mentioned earlier you felt you could expand into those markets. Just a bit of detail on that because uh, obviously they're going to be fairly competitive. Um, what, why are you so confident that you can expand into those markets going forward? So there are surprisingly um, uh, open statistics from a company called LMC, which looks at the costs of sugar production around the world. Um, and they look at the economic cost of growing sugar in the fields, whether that's sugar cane in Brazil, for example, or Thailand, or sugar beet in the UK or North America. Uh, and they compare the processing costs in factories. And if you look at those, British factories are the most efficient in the world. Uh, and the combination of British fields and British factories uh, is second only to a particular region of Brazil. So in that world market, you're right, it is competitive. Um, but all things being equal, we should be able to make the profit um, even when the world sugar market is at its lowest. And part of that's because of our partners in, in the farm. So yields of sugar beet, the amount of sugar beet you get from a, an acre of land um, over the last 25 years has gone up by 60%, and it's gone up by 25% in the last 10 years. So 
the farmers really are making this industry hugely competitive, just as we are with our investment. Paul Kenwood, MD of British Sugar, speaking there with Andy Marsh. On the phone, which I know it wasn't the perfect line, but I thought it's still well worth hearing what he had to say all the same. If you couldn't quite hear it, it's uh, worth taking a second listen on the podcast. You might be able to hear it in a bit more quality, uh, available on our website from tomorrow. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. Yes, on to the uh, forecast then. And uh, April showers? Well, I guess so. We are into uh, April after all. Uh, one or two showers possible today. Some sunshine as well, though. 12, 13 Celsius the high. The wind from the northwest at about five miles an hour. Overnight tonight, cloudy at first. Possibility of some clear spells after midnight. Lows of around five Celsius. The wind from the south, 10 to 15 miles an hour. And then tomorrow, patchy clouds, some sunny spells. Highs of 15 Celsius. That wind from the south to southwest, 15 gusting at 20 miles an hour. Overnight, Monday into Tuesday, mostly dry, cloudy, possibility of a shower first thing on Tuesday morning, 8 Celsius the low, the wind from the west-southwest, 10 to 20 miles an hour. And then Tuesday itself, another day of patchy clouds, some sunny spells, should be dry though, 12 Celsius the high, the wind more from the north-northwest at 10 miles an hour. Tuesday into Wednesday, staying cloudy, 4 Celsius will be the low overnight, the wind from the west at 10, gusting at 20 miles an hour, and then showers for the middle of the week, 12 Celsius the high, and uh, the wind from the northwest again at about uh, 10 to 15 miles an hour. For the end of the week, it looks like uh, some sunny spells on the card should stay dry by the looks of things. Highs of around 12 Celsius, overnight lows with clear skies down to 4 or 5 Celsius, and that wind continuing more from the west at about 15 to 25 miles an hour. So that's the forecast and indeed another week in the hectic world of agriculture. As ever, if you've a suggestion of something you think we should be covering on the programme, please do get in touch. Email through the website or on social media. If you're on Twitter, at Farming Show, you'll find us. I always welcome your ideas and feedback. Maybe your suggestion will be on the programme next week. Until then, whatever we have in store next Sunday, have a good week's farming.